As I was thinking about tonight, the verse in Job 42 came to mind in verse uh, 6, or I'm sorry, verse 5. Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wouldn't that be great as you walk out of here tonight, you say, no, I, I see God a whole lot more clear now. I know him better. I love him more as a result of being in his house tonight. Well, we begin a new series, uh, World Religion, so I'm glad you're here and look forward to um, spending some time with you tonight. We're going to begin with Christianity tonight, and next week, uh, Pastor Patrick will plan to lead us in um, Mormonism. The week after, we'll look at Jehovah Witness, and then the next two weeks after that, we're going to look at Islam, and all of these are going to be good, but let me just tell you, if you have to circle two of them, the ones on Islam are going to be really good. We have a guest speaker coming in, uh, someone I've known for a number of years. He leads a ministry called International Muslim Outreach. He lives in Tampa, Florida, and he's lived in the Middle East. He was an officer, intelligence officer in the Marines, went to Yale. So he's very smart, but he's also, uh, he's lived it in the Middle East. And he can communicate how to reach Muslims like no one else I know. He's the best that I know at this. And so I want to encourage you, please make it a priority to be here those two nights especially. Bring someone with you. He has a talk called Tripwires, Things That You Don't Want to Say to Muslims. That is just unbelievable. Because if you're not careful, we can say things unintentionally, and it totally distracts you. And you go down a road you don't want to go down. You can't get them back. And he will tell you what those things are and how to engage a Muslim with the gospel. So that's January 31st and February 7th. Uh, after that, Lord willing, we'll look at Buddhism and Hinduism. And for the one on Hinduism, I have a dear friend that's a pastor in India, and he'll talk to us by way of video. But he's a pastor at a growing church, a thriving church in India. So I thought, you know, we could look at a book and study about Hindu, Hinduism, but why not hear from somebody who's ministering among them and who grew up there? So that'll be uh, later in February. But I want to begin by telling you a story about a particular man. He was born in the year 570 AD. He lived a number of decades. He was quite a leader in his time. His mom name, mom's name was Amina. His dad's name was Abdallah. And unfortunately, tragedy struck this young boy at an early age. When he was a year old, his mother passed away. When he was six years old, his father passed away. Then he went to live with his, his um, grandfather and his grandfather passed away when he was eight. And then after that, he went to live with an uncle. And this uncle was in the trade business. He traveled to Syria and Palestine. And so this young man would, would accompany his uncle, and they would trade things like spices and other goods. They would run across Jews and Christians. And so he really lived like a Bedouin for a number of years, just kind of traveling and moving around. Well, he eventually got married at the age of 25. He married a woman 16 years older than him. And she had a cousin who was in the ministry. And so this cousin began discipling her husband and began pouring into him and wanted him to become a priest. So he began studying and, and sought spiritual direction from him. Um, he, he encouraged people to embrace, to turn from paganism, to embrace monotheism to worship the God of Abraham, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And things were going pretty well for him, but all of a sudden that spiritual mentor died as well. And so it left him with a real vacuum in his life of wondering, where do I go? Who do I turn to for direction spiritually? 
what do I want my life to be? In his confusion, he began to think of himself like some of the people in the Bible. He thought, well, you know, Moses was the, uh, spoke to the Hebrews and, you know, Jesus spoke to the Christians, so I'm going to be the one that's going to speak to the Arab people. And by now, you may realize I'm talking about Muhammad. And around 610 A.D., Muhammad claimed he began receiving revelation from Gabriel, the angel. And he began writing this down, and we know it now as the Quran. But it makes you wonder, what would have happened? Or before, before I do that, let me say this. His message toward radical monotheism, um, it threatened punishment for negligence, and it promised heaven for submission. The name Islam means submission. And uh, many Jews in Arabia turned against him because of his message. And when they turned against him, that's when things turned ugly. He began wars. He began killing people. He began selling women and children into slavery. Until that point, Muhammad had followed Jewish customs. He would pray three times a day. He would face toward Jerusalem when he prayed. He would rest on the Sabbath on Saturday. But after that rejection by the Jews, he changed that. He said, well, I'm not going to pray three times a day. I'm going to pray five times a day. I'm not going to face toward Jerusalem. I'm going to face toward Mecca. I'm not going to rest on Saturday. I'm going to rest on Friday. I'm not going to blow the shofar for prayer. I'm going to have somebody else do it. And, and, and it's called um, the Adan, the announcement, the call to prayer, that if you go in the Middle East, you'll hear it all over the place. And so that was the birth of Islam. Now, Muhammad died um, about 632 A.D., and right after he died, or soon after, there was an aggressive expansion of Islam. In 638, Jerusalem was now in the hands of Muslims. Antioch fell to Muslims the same year. Uh, 642, 643, Alexandria now fell to the Muslims. Three key Christian cities in the early church were now, within 10 years, under Muslim control. And it just makes you wonder, what would have happened if Muhammad would have had a Christian mentor in his life? You see, the man who discipled him was not a Christian. Oh, he, he was a priest, but he wasn't a Christian priest. He was an Ebionite. The Ebionites were extreme Judaizers who had beliefs very similar to Christians, but they denied the deity of Jesus. They said, no, Jesus was not born by a virgin. He, he, he was or not born through a virgin birth. He was born naturally and he just obeyed the law so well that God chose him to be the Messiah. And so he denied the deity of Christ. And so after his mentor died, Christians came to him and tried to get him to believe in the deity of Jesus. They said, no, 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 I can't buy into that. And it just makes you wonder, what would the last 15 years, 1,500 years look like without Islam? You see, it's important to know what we believe and why we believe it. And so we're going to start tonight with Christianity. And you may be wondering, well, Barry, we're already Christians. Why are we studying that? Well, we need to know the real thing so we can understand and, and uh, point out the counterfeit. Okay? So we're going to look at seven essential doctrines of Christianity. These are things that we need to believe in order to be Christian. And so... You already believe them, I'm sure, but I hope that tonight you'll grow in understanding and really for the rest of your life, grow in understanding so that you'll be strengthened in your faith, but also you can, you can help others in their understanding and their spiritual growth as well. So there's a little handout back there if you don't have one yet, just a little simple fill in the blank just to kind of help you track along and uh, we'll, we'll roll through this together. 
So we need to begin with what's a working definition of what religion is. A religion is a system of beliefs and practices that directs a person toward transcendence and thus provides meaning and coherence to a person's life. The term transcendence just means like an encounter with the, with the supernatural, something beyond this life. So religion seeks this encounter with God or with some higher being outside of this world. For some people, that, that experience may come, they believe it comes through prayer. If you're Roman Catholic, you believe it comes through the sacraments. If you're uh, a Muslim, you believe it comes through traveling to Mecca or praying five times a day or fasting for Ramadan, all these different things that you do externally in order to have an encounter with God. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say this, well, I'm not, I'm not into religion, I'm spiritual. You ever, you ever heard somebody say that? So there is a difference, and, and they're, they're correct that there is a difference. Um, the difference is religion involves some type of external activity. So, for example, you and I are Christian, Protestant, Southern Baptist. So we gather corporately for worship. Tonight, we gather Sunday mornings. We gather for life group. We do a number of different things. That, those are the external features um, of our religion because we love Jesus Christ and because he said to do those things. We're to gather together. We baptize people. We practice the Lord's Supper. All of these things are external features, okay? So a good question where, on the other hand, spirituality is strictly private. It's personal. There's no external features to it. So a good question to ask someone um, if they will, if they pull that card on, and I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Hey, tell me about your spirituality. What type of impact has it had on others lately? Tell me about your spirituality. What, what type of impact has it had? And I'm, I'd, be, I'd love to know that, that answer because it's strictly personal. Because for Christians, it begins with a personal relationship with Jesus, but then it overflows into others, right? Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You see, that's to have an impact on others around me. So if you have a Christian who's saying, no, 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 I'm just spiritual, then there's, there's something, there's an error in their thinking, and hopefully we can help them see, yeah, but it does begin with a private relationship, but it doesn't just stay there. Uh, it needs to overflow, and you should be a blessing to others. Um, another great question that you can ask to anyone is, hey, tell me what you believe. T tell, me, tell me what you believe. And you can find out really quick if, if um, they're saying, I'm a Jew, it's just they were born to a Jewish family, or... You know, yeah, I'm Muslim. Well, tell me, tell me, what, tell me what do you believe as a Muslim? Um, you can find out really quick if it's something they genuinely believe or it's just something that we handed to them. And that can give you a platform for discussion. Now, what are some of the roots or what is a root of religion in the Old Testament? I'm going to just read you a, a quick verse. This is in Genesis chapter 4. At the end of Genesis 4, it says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, there you go. There's an external feature. So you had a group of people. We're not sure how many. We're not even sure if they were together or if they're individual. I, I personally think they were together, but I can't prove that. And they began to pray. They obviously recognized that there's a God. This comes after the killing of um, Abel, for Cain killed him. So they cried out to God, and they realized, hey, there's sin in the world. There's brokenness. Uh, God did not create the world to be like this. So we see this external crying out to God in prayer. And there was a belief, obviously, that God would hear, that he would respond. So there, I, would, I would point to that as there's the beginning of religion in the Old Testament. 
And so let's talk a little bit about Christianity. What is Christianity? It's a religion based on a belief system, a set of doctrines having to do with God, humanity, sin, and salvation. It's a religion based on a belief system, a set of doctrines having to do with God, humanity, sin, and salvation. So these doctrines are found in God's Word. We'll talk about a lot of Scripture tonight, and some of those I've got listed for you. Um, if you want to look them up later, or we'll look some of them up, some of them as we go along. Uh, the good news is you and I don't have to invent doctrines. Doctrines are, are already revealed in God's Word. It's our job to believe Christianly, and then we, under, we, we grow in our understanding as we become grow in our Christian walk. We grow to understand how God has revealed himself. So some of these doctrines we'll talk about, um, we didn't come up with those. They, they've been there for, for hundreds, some thousands of years. Uh, but we're trying to understand what they are so we can become more like Jesus. Um, remember the word and the key word in the Gospel of John is the word believe. The verb form in John's Gospel occurs 98 times. Believe. But the noun form doesn't even occur in John's Gospel. It's all about active trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior. And so that's why we, we often, you often hear it said, hey, tell them to read the, the book of John if it's a lost person. Because it's pushing people toward faith in Christ. So what it means to be Christian is to have, to, is to have an active trust in Jesus Christ as God's son. That's what it means to be Christian. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. So we become Christian through active trust, through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then we have an ongoing walk with him. So I'm going to share seven essential truths, seven different doctrines that we need to believe as Christians. These are basic. They're in Scripture. Uh, I'll show you where they are. So first, I want you to fill in the blank for me. God is blank. There's a lot of, and let me tell you, there's a lot of good answers here, okay? There's, um, but there's one I'm fishing for. So God is fill in the blank. What, what would you say? Love, okay, Absolutely. What else? Holy. Somebody said something over here. Okay, omnipotent, absolutely. Keep, keep going. Omniscient. There we go. That's the one I was searching for. That's right. God is Trinitarian in nature. Okay, he is all those things that, that you guys affirmed, absolutely. But God is Trinitarian in nature. If you look in the very first chapter of the Bible... We're introduced to God the Father in the very first verse. God created the heavens and the earth. Then it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there in the first two verses, you see God the Father, and you see God the Holy Spirit. Well, what about Jesus? Well, John 1 tells us that Jesus was there too. The Word was with the Father in the beginning. And that everything that was made was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the sun, humanity, the plants, everything was made through Christ. The Father spoke it. The Son carried it out. The Spirit was involved as well. So from the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that God is Trinitarian in nature. We, 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 as we keep reading Scripture, we learn more about that. But at the very first chapter... What we need to know is that there's a unity, but there's also a distinction in persons. 
And so, um, as we continue with that thought, um, here's a definition of the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, yet there's only one God. So B.B. Warfield, um, a theologian from about 100 years ago, had this to say, there is only one, there is one only and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-eternal person, co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. So the same in nature, but distinct in personhood. So the term Trinity means three in oneness. Now the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, but the concept is. There was an early church father named Tertullian. He was the first one to use the term Trinity. He was born in 150 um, AD, or I'm sorry, 155. He died in 220. But he was the first one to use the, the term Trinity. But the concept is found in the Word of God. So there's three statements that characterize the doctrine of the Trinity. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So there, there's only one God. You can look at um, you know, the ancient Greek culture with multiple gods and the God of war and the God of love and the God of medicine. And uh, those were invented. Those were human imagination. They're not, they're not real. Uh, there's only one true and living God. Um, in John chapter 20, we see that each person in the, in the Trinity is fully God. In John, John chapter 20, remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? He's doubting Jesus, and he said, you know, unless I see him, unless I put my finger in the, in the imprint in his side, I, I will not believe. So Jesus appeared to Thomas, and he said, put your finger here. See my hands? And put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. Now, Jesus didn't stop him. He's going, whoa, whoa, whoa Thomas. You, you crossed a line. I, I'm not God. He, no, he, he received the worship that Thomas was giving him because he's God. Now, the Holy Spirit is also fully God. Uh, when Jesus, remember, taught his disciples how to baptize, he gave them the Great Commission. He said, you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is placed on equal authority with the Father and the Son. And then also, in terms of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 5, Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Later in verse 4, Peter said, you've not lied to man, but to God. So you see the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, each person is fully God. So um, next we need, to, we need to talk about Jesus is fully God, fully man, yet one person. So fully God, fully man, yet one person. Um, you, can, you can think back to uh, places in Scripture, I'm sure, where, where Jesus, you see the humanity of Jesus. Remember when Jesus got tired, was sleeping on the boat? Um, remember when he, um, um, I think it was, in, it was in John 4, where he talked about, I'm thirsty. You know, you see, you see different times, you see the humanity of Jesus. Um, but Jesus... 
what we need to know first is that he's fully God and fully human because of the virgin birth. Jesus was born of a woman named Mary so that Jesus could be human, yet fully God. Um, he did not have a human father, and Mary was confused as how this was going to happen. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the virgin birth was a supernatural work of God, made possible for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, God sent for his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So every other human has had an earthly father. And Adam, the reason Adam was not involved is because sin passes through Adam. And so because Jesus does not have an earthly father, Jesus is without sin. Because if you look in Romans 5, Adam... Well, first of all, Adam's held responsible in Genesis chapter 3. But if you look in Romans 5, it talks about sin came through one man. And because of that, all sinned. And so um, the Roman Catholics believe that Mary herself was free from sin. But as Protestants, we don't believe that. We believe all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just believe somehow the Holy Spirit prevented that sin from passing to Jesus because he's God, the Holy Spirit, and he can do that. Second, Jesus was born with a human body. Jesus was born as all babies are born. He grew physically as children do. He grew in wisdom according to Luke 2.40. He had a human body. He grew and developed as boys do. He had every characteristic that all humans have. I heard someone ask a question one time. You know, if Jesus played baseball when he was growing up, did he hit a home run every time? You know, I don't know. Maybe they didn't play baseball, you know. I don't know. It's a good question. You start thinking through the humanity of Christ, and it's, there's, we're just left to we can only speculate with a sanctified imagination. Uh, next, Jesus had a human soul and human emotions. John 12, 27, Jesus said his soul was troubled. Before the crucifixion, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. And according to Hebrews 5, 7, during the life of Christ, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus did all this as a human without sinning. Fourth, Jesus never sinned. Satan tempted him. He tried. Thankfully, Jesus never sinned. John 8, 46 said, the, uh, Pilate, or Jesus asked the Jews who opposed him, which one of you convicts me of sin? No one could, no one could answer. Even Pilate said, John 18, I find no crime in him. Hebrews 7, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, verse 5, in him there is no sin. That's, that's our Lord Jesus. Jesus is also fully God. The angel told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he's not just a human, but he's God. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 2, 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Next, Christians believe in the spiritual lostness of the human race. So we believe that God is Trinitarian. The next, we believe in the spiritual lostness of the human race. So yes, man was made in the image of God. That means we were made like God. Uh, we were not made, we, we're not God, we were made like God. It just means that um, we're, we're without sin, just as God is without sin. Man's job was to represent God on earth and have dominion over the earth. We were to dominate the earth. But as you know, sin changed everything. And because of that, we're all born as sinners. But after the, even after the fall, man is still created in the image of God. In Genesis 9, 6, it says that um, God said to Noah, he made man in his own image. And in the New Testament, so James wrote that man is made in the likeness of God. James 3, verse 9. So man's not like fully, is not as fully like God as he was prior to the fall because we've lost our moral purity. But we're still made in the likeness of God. So as you see anyone, any other created person, they're made in the likeness of God. So they deserve love and respect and kindness because they're made in the likeness of God just like you are. Sin is a fa failure to conform to God's standard or moral law and act, attitude or nature. Adam and Eve's sin did not remain only with them. Their sin impacted every human born. We talked about that. In Romans 5, Paul was talking about this, it was talking about this inherited guilt. When you and I are born, we we born with the inherited guilt of Adam's sin and Eve's sin. It's known as original sin. That's the bad news. That's what Romans 3.23 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're born as sinners. We naturally rebel. We naturally lie. We naturally steal. We naturally resist against authority. That's part of our sin nature. Uh, the bad news only gets worse because the penalty for sin is death, physical death and spiritual death. So we're born desperately needing hope and desperately needing help. So next, Christians believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection. This is where the good news of the gospel begins. In Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, he delivered to the church as of first importance what he had received. That's a good word for all of us. Are we passing on the gospel as of first importance? Is that a priority in our lives, to pass that on? Or is it way down the list? Are there other things that are more important? The atonement of Christ refers to the work that Jesus did in his life and death to purchase our salvation. Because God is a holy God and is just, we needed a way for our sin to be paid for so that we would not have to suffer eternally for our sin. And the, a great verse that I think captures the gospel is Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25, it says this, talking about Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God took the initiative. God put Jesus forward, and Jesus willingly laid down his life, and we receive him by faith. The whole gospel is right there in verse 25. It's amazing. It's a great verse to share with people. You know that 2 Peter 2 verse 4 
says that God did not spare angels when they sinned. Have you ever thought about that? God did not even spare angels when they sinned. Yeah, God decided to spare us. That's, that's pretty amazing. He decided to make a way where we could be saved. Praise God for that. So, Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. <clears throat> as we said earlier, um, Jesus' resurrection was, Jesus rose again on the third day, but his resurrection was completely different than what happened to Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus got up out of the grave, but Lazarus just came back to life, and so he would have to die again. But when Jesus rose again, he came out of the tomb. He came out with a glorified spiritual body that was certainly a body um, because he said in Luke 24, see my hands and my feet that I, it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So I'm not, I'm not a ghost. Uh, I'm not a spirit, Jesus said. I, 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 have, I have flesh and bones. It's just a glorified heavenly body. It's described in 1 Corinthians 15. It's imperishable. It's glorious. It's not susceptible to sickness. It is uh, not prone to cancer. Uh, that body will not die. That body will last. And it one day will be rejoined with our spirit to live with Christ forever. And that's the joy and the hope that we have as Christians. The same body that goes into the ground or the same body that's cremated, that doesn't prevent God from, from putting that body back together. That body is rejoined to the spirit when Jesus comes back and we live with him forever and ever. <clears throat> the next doctrine we need to talk about is salvation. Christians believe that a decision for Christ must be made. Since Jesus has paid for our sin, we believe that salvation is available for all, but it is not automatic. It's available, but it's not automatic. So just because Jesus died for our sin does not mean everybody gets saved. Um, you have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Romans 8.30 talks about the order of the salvation process. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there is a calling that takes place. And when we share the gospel, there is a calling that God is doing through us. We may be aware of it. We may not. A pastor gives a call every Sunday morning for people to respond to Christ. And I'm thankful for that. Um, you and I should give a call as often as we can, encouraging others to turn to Christ. I was thinking earlier today about, you know, how many times I heard that call in my life. I can remember hearing it on a couple of different occasions as a, as a young boy, maybe once as a young teenager, maybe once as a boy, once as a young teenager, and then once when I was in college, and then eventually turned to Christ in my third year of college. But thankfully, God was patient. God was merciful. And he allowed me to hear that call one more time. And he gave me the grace to respond in faith in Christ. We see this gospel call in um, Acts chapter 16. Paul is in uh, Philippi. It says, they go to Philippi, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. 
And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And so it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. This is Acts 16, verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul was speaking the gospel, and God was calling through him, and God opened her heart to respond in faith. Because right after that, she was baptized. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So you see the gospel call comes through preaching, comes through sharing, and then it also involves a decision. That's why shortly after this story, Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they were. So faith simply means trust, trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith is not the cause of eternal life. It's the channel through which we receive God's gift of eternal life. Once someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they're born again. Or the theological term is they're regenerated. They're a new person in Christ. Now, next, Christianity affirms the physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it gets better. So remember Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you to be with me. So that where I am, you may be also. Jesus told, or uh, actually the um, two men in white robes in Acts chapter 1 said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus that you saw go up into heaven, he'll come back the same way. He'll come back. Uh, we don't know when, but he'll, he'll come back. And so that's the joy we have as Christians, is to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. Zechariah in verse, uh, chapter 14 Verse 4 says that Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives. It will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So, um, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, um, there's several different components involved with the return of Jesus. Uh, first, we, we need to be ready. Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 44, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He said, it's going to be like the time of Noah. Remember the time of Noah? You know, they probably uh, made fun of him. Why are you building an ark? It's not raining. Uh, it hadn't rained in however long. But Noah was faithful, because that's what God told him to do, until the rain came. And Noah and his family went in, and the animals and everybody else was left out. And so um, it'll be like that, Jesus said. You have some that they won't take it seriously. Oh, Jesus is not coming back. He's not real. Um, and then all of a sudden he returns, and it's too late. Jesus said, or Christians, rather, should eagerly long for Christ's return. Jesus said, surely I am coming soon at the end of Revelation. And then John said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, amen. Come on, come on right now. The book of Titus says Christians must live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the final doctrine we must affirm as Christians is the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture. 
This one could have been put first for sure, but um, they're, they're all important. So the authority of Scripture means that every word came from God. And if we do not believe them or we don't obey them, then we're professing unbelief in God or we're being disobedient to him. We can't pick out portions of Scripture and say, well, I like this one, but I'm not going to obey that one. All of God's word is authoritative. It carries weight. It is to be obeyed. Um, if we deny the inerrancy of Scripture, then we will eventually deny key doctrines and key passages of Scripture that discuss our behavior as Christians. We'll hold a loose view of adultery, sin, homosexuality, divorce, remarriage, and on and on. Serious consequences follow those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament we read the phrase, Thus says the Lord, which means these words came directly from God. Of course, you know the verse in um, 2 Timothy 3, 16, All scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, I believe primarily he's talking about the Old Testament there. Um, certainly any books in the New Testament that had been written by then, it could apply to that. But all scripture definitely refers to the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter, he mentioned the letters of Paul, and then he, in the same verse or in the next verse, he mentioned Scripture, that they're on the same level as Scripture. So he put the letters of Paul, all 13 of them, on the same level as the Old Testament. So that's where you get the inspiration of Paul's letters. What about the Gospels? Well, in 1 Timothy 5, 18, um, Paul quoted from Deuteronomy 25, 4, while also quoting from Luke 10, 7. So he puts Luke's words on the same authority as Deuteronomy. So you just begin to piece this together, that the Bible is attesting to itself that it is authoritative, and it carries weight, and we are to obey it. Now finally, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth. So it may not give you everything you would like to know about a certain topic, but everything that it says is true. Um, all God's word is inerrant and completely trustworthy. Yes, we do not have any of the original manuscripts. That is true. But we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament that are copies of copies. And we believe we've discovered 99% of what the original manuscript said. And let me, let me just give you an example of what that means. There's over 5,600 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament that exist. They, these range from a scrap of a few verses to entire copies of the New Testament. Um, the texts were copied with special care, and most of the discrepancies that occurred were, through, were spelling errors. You can imagine copying something and copying, and at some point you probably make a mistake. And so that's where most of the errors occurred. Um, but there's no Christian beliefs or doctrines that are at stake in that 1%. Okay, I'll come back to that in just a minute. We have 12 manuscripts from the 2nd century, 64 from the 3rd, and 48 from the 4th century. That's 124 Greek manuscripts within 300 years of composition. By comparison, the average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his work still in existence and none within 300 years. There are three times more New Testament manuscripts within the first 200 years than the average Greco-Roman author has in 2,000 years. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? If we are going to doubt 
the New Testament, then we would have to multiply those doubts by at least a thousand for the average classical Greek author. So um, some of the history that's taught in school, if you're doubting that, then you certainly have to doubt the, the New Testament. So here's two examples of what are, what are, what's in that 1%. Here's two examples. Remember in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus said, that kind can only come out by prayer. Okay. Now, there's some manuscripts that say prayer and fasting. That, that can only come out by prayer and fasting, or that can only come out by prayer. Well, which is it? Well, I don't know. But is there any, is there, is there any major doctrine involved there? No. I don't think so. Um, here's another one. Revelation 13, 18. You know, the, where it talks about the number of the beast will be 666. There was a manuscript found in the 19th century that said the number was 616. And then it was confirmed by another fragment of a manuscript found in the 20th century at Oxford University that read the same. So the earliest manuscript we have of that passage says the number is 616 instead of 666. Now, does that affect any major doctrine? No. Um, but th those are the type of issues that are in that 1%. Now, Bart Ehrman who says this in his book, Misquoting Jesus, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So you can have confidence that what we have in our hands is the word of God, that it has authority over our lives and that we should submit to it and do exactly what it says. So I hope that encouraged you tonight. I have some questions at the bottom of your sheet, I'm going to pray for us and would love for you to get in a small group, take 10 minutes or so and work through those questions just to engage with some other people. Uh, thank you for being so attentive. Again, next week is Mormonism, uh, but let's bow our hearts and our heads in prayer.